Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So I reviewed the Stormy Daniels memoir for Vanity Fair back in 2018. Oh, Great book. It really is. Really? What I said is that it's like what I thought Hillbilly Elegy was going to be. Oh, when I read wow. It. All right. That's a great line. <laughs> because it's the story of a person who kind of grows up in deprivation. She's originally from Louisiana. Um, she makes good in a way that's kind of unconventional, but she, at her core, doesn't really change from being a person who... You know, she she feels like she represents, you know, forgotten America. And I think that that is what is so symbolically strange about this encounter between these two people is that, you know, Trump is the person who's speaking to this this idea of America that may not be real. And Stormy herself is such a, a fascinating avatar of it. And Stormy is an unregistered Republican. Yes, yes. She she had mainly voted for Republicans for most of her life. Unbelievable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course, Donald Trump had been a Democrat. Just the weirdest uh, story ever told. You're listening to Inside the Hive, where Vanity Fair writers tackle the week's news in politics, media, and entertainment. I'm Erin Vanderhoof, a staff writer here at Vanity Fair. And I'm Molly Jongfast, a special correspondent for Vanity Fair. In this episode, we're talking about the big news this week, Donald Trump's arraignment. We thought we'd discuss the latest events in the saga and what we think it all means. So, Molly, I'm sure everyone has heard a lot about what has been going on here in Manhattan, not too far from the Condé Nast office downtown. But can you quickly fill us in on how we even got to this point? <laughs> well, it all started with a third marriage and an adult film star. Stormy Daniels, an adult film star, she had a tryst with Donald Trump. Years later, Michael Cohen or Donald Trump, it's not clear who in that brain trust cooked this up, but they decided to give her $130,000 in the hopes that she would not come forward during his campaign. This is now the sort of crux of this case is that this payment is a illegal campaign contribution, which kicks it up to a federal crime. And that is how we ended up here. Oh, gosh. It's crazy to think. So Stormy Daniels first came forward with that story in March 2018. It, I think it's really, really sh- hard to just remember how long we've been sitting with this yeah. information and how strange it feels to finally have 
concrete consequences kind of coming from it. Yeah. The DA bringing these charges is a guy called Alvin Bragg. He had an earlier opportunity to bring a tax case against Donald Trump, which was the tax case which ended up going against the company and the CEO Mm -hmm. of the Trump organization, a guy called Alan Weisselberg. But he fundamentally, for whatever reason, did not bring that case. That led to a lot of drama in his office. He decided instead to bring this case, which, again, some people think is maybe not as good a case as the previous case. I want to just talk about for one second the racism that Trump has embraced. You know, Trump, I don't think we should beat around the bush here. Trump, besides being a terrible misogynist, is a horrible racist. And one of the things he has decided in his attack against Alvin Bragg, who is black, is that this is somehow anti-white racism, which, by the way, is one of the talking points of the far right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we should call a spade a spade. A white nationalist talking point is that somehow there's racism against white people, which is By the way, completely insane. It is not true. No one thinks this. It is just like a weird kind of projection of Trumpism. And so Trump has, you know, really played this up. And then also calling him a Soros-backed prosecutor. And, you know, even Soros tweeted that, you know, I didn't specifically support him at (laughs) any point in time, though I have supported reformist prosecutors. It's like such a weird—that always gives me the feeling that we're walking into— uh, like, right-wing conversation that has, like, already been going on without right. us. And it exactly. always feels hard to catch up. Well, and I also think it's important to bring up, you know, basically the reason that Trump got the nomination was that because he was willing to engage with a part of the Republican Party that the rest, that many Republicans had quietly wink-wink, nod-nodded with, but were refused to in- endorse. You know, the really— the basest element of the base, the white nationalists, the racists, the people like Richard Spencer. Those people, people like Mitt Romney, had always refused to engage with because they had felt that it was sort of the third rail of the Republican Party. What Trump did was he embraced those people. So whenever Trump gets in trouble, you see he goes for those people because he knows those are his people because those people are so incredibly beyond the pale that they have no one else. So the only mainstream Republican that they can get is Donald Trump because Donald Trump fundamentally believes racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic things. And so you'll always hear him sooner or later go back to those tropes. Well, and I think that that helps explain why there was so much anticipation about what was happening on Tuesday, that those people were the ones that he was already trying to invoke and, like, bring into the tent. So let's talk a bit about what happened on Tuesday. To begin our story, we must rewind to Monday night. I mean, this is like so profoundly Trumpy. He decided he would get on his Trump-branded plane and fly back to New York, land at LaGuardia Airport. He would then sleep in his Trump-branded apartment building, which, uh, you know, and then he would get in his motorcade and go down to be booked, even though, and I think this is really important, he was not booked the way the many, many, many people who are arrested in New York are booked. He was booked in this way that was profoundly, you know, special. Mm-hmm. You know, he did not get a mugshot. The most, you know, normal thing that happened to him was that someone didn't hold the door for him. 
Right. And that, mm-hmm. by the way, has we have it, we in the media have talked about the door falling on him. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm telling you that most people who go to Rikers, the door falling on them is not the biggest issue. It'll be it's the la- the <laughs> last thing you're thinking right. of. Yeah. It's the moldy sandwiches, it's the cups of pee. It is not the door falling on you. So uh, Donald Trump had a very special experience. He was booked. Again, the idea is that Alvin Bragg was the first to charge him. It happened. There was a 24 hours of Trump media coverage. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things that I think I was really surprised to hear is just how few people there were that showed up in front of the courthouse, really, to protest, that there was sort of like a big imbalance between reporters and supporters out there. Is it just because it was in New York? What do you think is behind, you know, the sense that people were afraid that there was going to be something, but then it turned out to be not so much? So I I think that's a really good question and something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I think, look, the people who did January 6th, not the people who encouraged them, not the people who spoke to them, but the people who actually broke in to the Capitol, a lot of those people went to jail, right? (laughs) Because it turns out— That, well, as uneven as the justice system is, it does actually punish the people who break into Congress. So I do think that has hurt the ability of Trump supporters to show up for him, right? Mm -hmm. Because they do not, you know, people don't want to go to jail. That's why the society has created it. So Trump said that he wished they would have held it in uh, Staten Island. More people would have shown up. An event promoter to his core. He knows. He knows, he knows how <laughs> to get a good turnout. Right. We did definitely see yesterday is that we got Marjorie Taylor Greene. We got George Santos kind of coming back into, into the fold. I mean, they realize, I think that we talk about them a lot, you know, here at Vanity Fair and just like I think on the left. But I think it is true that they have an uncanny way of understanding that, you know, how to be, like, influencers in a way that most people in Congress don't. I mean, they are true MAGA celebrities. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is that Trump's true heir parents are people who are almost worse than Trump, right? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene shot to fame on QAnon, conspiracy theories that the Rothschilds were involved with lasers that caused the forest fires in California, And George Santos shot to fame on being a serial liar. So, (laughs) I mean, it's pretty incredible. George Santos and Marjorie Taylor Greene both came to give speeches. They found the crowd not that hospitable. Ah, interesting. Was it just that it was small or was it that— Was it that they weren't, you know, there for what they were selling? Well, George Santos, there's a video of him being like, you people, meaning the media, ruined this for us. And I was like, ruined what for you? I mean, like Trump's indictment? You have a—I mean, the whole thing was so chaotic there. You know, look, Trump has rode to the presidency on free media and now wants to complain about the media. Sorry, guys. I mean, in some ways, the best way to get free media is to complain about the media. Right. Because if there's one thing that the media loves, it's, it's media. It's media. Yeah. yeah. You have to ask yourself, was the media more interested in this than the viewing public? I mean, I think that that's almost hard to deny. That yeah. unplugging from Trump would require us all to kind of change our viewing habits, our definition of what counts as newsworthy. And I think that it's been so – this week was a reminder that we actually have changed a lot of the way that we used to cover Trump. But yes. it's like finally something that kind of rose to the level of newsworthiness 
got us back into thinking about it again. You know, in 2016, Trump got two billion dollars of free media. There was a study, $2 billion of free media. And that, I don't think, I mean, again, I don't want to be optimistic here because if anything, history has told me that optimism will be crushed. But I do think to a certain extent, he has not gotten that kind of free media since then. Mm -hmm. And we now need to talk about Trump's speech. Yes, we'll be back in just a moment. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. We are both looking at a printout of Trump's Mar-a-Lago speech, and I want to talk to you about this. Are you always surprised when you look at a Trump speech that someone has written this? I've gotten to the point where I do kind of, like, love reading it in paper because it really is so different from the experience of hearing it. And yesterday, you know, I watched the speech, and he walks out to the boomer classics, as always. Uh, (laughs) Last night was Rebel Rebel by David Bowie and Ring of Fire, things like those are— Well, and I I think it really underscores exactly why the arraignment in the long run kind of seems good for him, is that he can say, like, I am a rebel now (laughs) because the Manhattan— DA is after me in a way that is very, you know, silly for a president to be able to say. All right. So I'm going to play a clip. I've got the C-SPAN in front of me. And I think we're getting into the beginning of him just talking about all the different things that he's mad about. They attacked me with an onslaught of fraudulent investigations. Russia, 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 Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Impeachment hoax number one. Impeachment hoax number two, the illegal and unconstitutional raid on Mar-a-Lago, right here. The lying to the FISA courts, the FBI. The FISA courts. Yeah, that, was a, that, was, that was such a Freudian slip. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, except that he says the FISA courts. Yeah. In the, yeah. So what stood out to you with this for the speech? Um, I'm just telling you, like, you read this speech and you think someone has sat down and actually written this, and it's not Trump. I think it was really a reminder that when he initially starts out speaking, he has these really, like, he is really good at sort of emotive teleprompter reading. Yes, And he's really good at sort of, you see this when you see really great newscasters, that they're so good at sort of like mimicking the cadence of 
a well-thought sentence even if they're not entirely sure where the sentence is going. Mm -hmm. Trump is so good at that, and he's so compelling always until he starts getting into things that are just like, you know— He's talking about how many percentage points he would have needed to win this place in order to win. The second he brought up the laptop, I was just like, oh, God, I know. I know that I'm I just this is not going to be for me because I really it's not going to be for you because you read English sentences beginning with the radical left, comma, George Soros backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York. Nowhere is that a sentence. There is no I mean, subject, verb, adverb. What is happening? I mean, you read it printed out and you want to die. I mean, the man murders English. I know this is not the point and merely a question of style over substance, but the style is real fucking bad. Excuse Mm -hmm. my French. I mean, that's what I just think is so fascinating about listening to him talk is that it's just like, wow, what a great list of all the reasons why I don't want to vote for you. But (laughs) I mean, the thing that always gets me, I, I maybe it's because I am a very kind of straightforward person in a way. Like, I see problems, and then I'm like, we should fix those problems. Right. It, I I feel like there's something so almost postmodern about this campaign of his that is entirely about himself, like, these issues in the past. Like, an entirely politics-free campaign. It's just about the things that happened the last time he was campaigning. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's amazing about Trump and Trumpism is that Here's a person who is really just focused on his slights, the times people have passed him up, the times people have, you know, I mean, there's a theory, right, that Trump just ran for office because Barack Obama made fun of him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, right? There's that theory. And uh, it is not the only thing I think that disproves that theory is if he had done it, he would talk about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that I think that there's a sense in which, you know, I think that thinking about fandom and like fandom cultures helps you kind of understand why once you find the person that just seems to have that emotion that you like or that charisma that you like, you will follow them regardless of right. wherever they're, you know, we've, yeah. he, he he's a motivates celebrity. people. Yeah. He motivates people to follow him, like, almost completely neutral on what the content of what he's saying is. Not to, you know, bring it all back to no, Vanity but Fair. No, but this is, but, I think, useful. But I think, I think that that's the insight that I think that we try to have at Vanity Fair is that you can't look at celebrity culture and you know, Hollywood culture and Washington culture in isolation because they are so, they're so intertwined in both the way that methods are disseminated amongst them. They're intertwined in the way that the people, you know, at the very, once you get to the upper echelon of one, you want to meet all the people that are at the upper echelon of the other. And that those, that our American society is so based on an intertwining of those things, you can't separate them. hundred percent. But I do want to say the thing I was thinking about, because you are a little younger than I am, only 14 years, not that I've been thinking about this the whole time, but there is a sense in which Donald Trump is very much a man of his generation. Mm-hmm. And the crew that follows him around, whether it's to Mar-a-Lago or to these rallies, it's a sort of bizarro Grateful Dead, right? The Grateful yeah. Dead, the deadheads were not like the Trumpers at all. They mm-hmm. fundamentally believed in in a lot of good stuff that we still believe in today. But this idea of a group that needs a leader. Yeah. 
is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I didn't think that I was going to bring this up. But one of the, the things that the environment around Trump and Trump rallies reminds me of is that I am a fan of the Jonas Brothers. And right. I was a fan of the Jonas Brothers when I was a teenager. And then when they came back together, like, I started seeing them live again. And I loved it. And I'm a huge fan of the Jonas Brothers again. And there's this huge group of people that, like, Joe Jonas was DJing in the afternoon at a streetwear store. And around the block is this line of... People exactly my age, mostly women, all there to see Joe Jonas DJ. And our main way of, like, existing in mass culture is is fandom. Yeah. And on the internet, it's a little different than it is for that age that is used to kind of, like, the physical act of it. Yeah. And I think that you dismiss Trump at your own peril, but you dismiss the phenomenon of fandom at your own peril, too. And that is why, in certain ways, like— I'm particularly disgusted by what this Republican Party has become. But I also realize they cannot get out of the world pool they're in. You know, they are in a black hole of Trumpism. And I am not convinced that they can get out of it in any way that is easy for them. Well, and I think that that really does bring us to the question of, I mean, on the one hand, I think it is always very frustrating to think about every political happening in terms of the next election. But at the same time, you know, not only do we have a former president who's been indicted, we've got a presidential candidate who is running right now. So this week, you wrote a great piece, you know, Trump's biggest trick, making GOP voters feel his indictment is targeting them. And what do you think that this means for those voters? How do you see this kind of playing out in the primary? Trump is saying, if they can do this to me, (laughs) they can do this to you when you pay off the pornographic actress you have sex with. And that, I think, is like the fundamental genius of Trumpism, Mm -hmm. is that somehow he's made something that none of his people can relate to, right? That I mean, this is, you know, paying off the most famous adult film star in the world because you're worried about your presidential campaign This is a problem that has happened to exactly one person. One person only. But one thing that you said in that article that I thought was really important and, like, I think says the most about how this is going to come together and continue to matter over the next year is that the people who are his opponents and should be attacking him are actually coming out and supporting him, that it it is becoming a, a way that Republicans show how much fealty they have. So how did you kind of come up with that and what are you thinking about that? So, uh, yeah, that's an incredible thing that is the trick that Donald Trump has done, which is he has made supporting him a litmus test. And this all comes back to Jeb Bush's Saturday morning tweet. Mr. Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush, who ran against Trump. Jeb Bush, whose life has been basically decimated by Donald Trump, right? He certainly thought he was going to be the nominee in 2016, His wife has been made fun of. His elderly mother was made fun of. I mean, the man, his son has, you know, had his Texas Republican career decimated by Trump and Trumpism. And he was defending Trump on Saturday morning in a tweet. And basically the idea is this, I think. And we saw it today with the cover of The Post. Rupert Murdoch decided that the calculus was attacking Alvin Bragg and trying to bring down the federal government, which is a true passion of many of these Republicans, is worth it. If Trump can hurt the federal government, then they're with Trump. Mm -hmm. And I think fundamentally that is what we're seeing here, is this belief that 
yeah, they don't like Trump. And they probably they know he probably can't win a general because we've seen he's lost elections. Right. But they really, really, really hate the federal government. Mm -hmm. And they really, really hate, you know, ultimately, I mean, again, the FBI and the CIA and all of these. And if they can in some way destroy the government, then maybe it's worth it. Not to put too fine a point on it. (laughs) Inside the Hive, we'll be back in just a moment. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. In this political universe, the biggest loser of the Trump indictment, Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Has he announced that he's no, in the primary? he has not, not announced. But everybody who doesn't want to have to vote for Trump again is hoping that he will be the standard bearer. So I would say the thought leaders of the Republican Party, the four of them that are still left, believe that they can have Trumpism without Trump mm-hmm. with Ron DeSantis. And, you know, as as any fan will tell you, like fandom without the fan object is not it's it just doesn't really exist. But. You know, the people are trying. But why is it that you think that this is going to reflect so poorly? Like, why is he going to be the loser of all of this? Because his poll numbers have already gone down. Because these people are seeing just what you said a minute ago. The Elvis impersonators don't get the same crowd that Elvis does. Mm -hmm. And again, this is one of the problems that I think political handlers have in general. They think that they can create lightning in a bottle. And what we know from watching political history is that uh, certainly political history after the time of television and uh, radio is that there are people who have it and people who don't. And Barack Obama had sort of two years and he got up on that stage and that was it, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the world was like Barack Obama is the next president. And I think that, and that was true of Bill Clinton too. Mm -hmm. You know, you either have it or you don't. And John Kerry didn't have it. And Mitt Romney didn't have it. And Donald Trump is a terrifying scumbag and an authoritarian. He has it. And so the idea that now you're going to sub him out with a guy who is not very charismatic and a little bit creepy and also, and again, I apologize in advance and I'm sure I'm going to get canceled for this, but he's shorter than the usual president. Mm -hmm. And even though that sounds very stupid, people who watch television debates, they don't like the shorter person. You know, we have not elected someone under six feet since we've had television. So that guy is not going to take the place of Trump. What that all makes me think is just how much we as a society have not come to terms with how much politics is about our, you know, animal brains, our like hind brains, our primitive natures that As much as we want to be rational in these things, you know, and there's a a whole group of people in the U.S. for whom it's only rational to not want to support somebody who has been charged with a crime for (laughs) Right, exactly. And I think that that's, you know, I think what Trump really is for us as a whole is like that I don't want a criminal 
president and right. I give me that criminal president like always kind of coming into into I, conflict. I think what you just said is so important this idea that we think we can have a sort of intellectual choice and a lot of this is about that you know the sort of the people on stage who you just want to have a beer with and I'm old enough so I remember the election of W and thinking to myself like this guy you cannot elect this guy right <laughs> like the choice is Al Gore, who's smart and understands science, or this guy who's at best an abject moron and at worst pretending to be an abject moron. He did not win by very many votes. He won by 538 votes in the state of Florida. Very close. But people voted for him because they wanted to have a beer with him. And that was not very long ago. Mm -hmm. My favorite other little internet happening connected with the indictment was the AI images that went viral of Trump being arrested, which, of course, nobody believed. But that juxtaposed with an AI image of the Pope wearing a, like, Balenciaga jacket that did go really viral. Like, there's a sense of which everybody is looking out for these Trump getting arrested AI images, but nobody knows that they're, like, everybody knows that they're fake. I think that there's, like, a little bit of wish fulfillment for liberals that is happening with Trump getting arraigned and you know, with Trump. Yes. Finally I, facing consequences. I There is a very annoying little bit of this news cycle that is dedicated to mainstream media pundits telling liberals they shouldn't be happy that Trump has been held accountable. That is a very annoying trope. People can feel however they want about Trump. I think the solemn day was the day When all of these Americans were like, let's elect the reality television host who had all the affairs and who is basically running on the idea that Hillary Clinton should be in jail for Benghazi, right? I mean, like, that was the dark day. Alvin Bragg charging Trump is not a dark day. This is a man who has used the presidency and the threat of running for president as a way to avoid accountability. And then he's even gone as far as to almost say as much, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to raise money. A lot. To ra- to and raise lots money, of money right? raised, yeah. He's raised a lot of money, but he's also done it to avoid accountability. And in fact, his people were saying he's going to, you know, announce because then he thinks he won't be indicted. I mean— That is not what the presidency should be for. It is not to help you commit crimes. And the idea that somehow this is some demarcation line and now they're going to indict all former presidents. I mean, if the presidents had done something good, do it. Maybe it is just because it's that political science 101 rule kind of thing that you hear that like, oh, you know, a functioning democracy doesn't, it solves things at the ballot box, not, you know, with criminal charges. No, the law is the law for everyone. Mm -hmm. Don't let them lose at the ballot box. It's the law. Like, and again, it's very annoying to me because like there's already like so much pushback, like Democrats are saying the law is the law for everyone. You guys are the party of law and order. I mean, am I going crazy here? Like that was the party of law and order. Sorry. I am going crazy. (laughs) Just like such a morass of all of the like problems with our society just turned into one pot and nobody knows what to do. And I feel like that's the situation when Donald Trump is he knows what he's doing is like everybody is confused and wants just somebody to yell like he will yell always. Just to look to the future of like now we are in another Trump news cycle, however that plays out. One of the things Trump was able to do was he was able to take advantage of how base a lot of the things he said were. Mm -hmm. 
And he was able to use that to get free media. So, you know, he would say something shockingly, breathtakingly racist. And we would all be like, oh, my God. Now, when he says things that are shockingly, breathtakingly racist, we're not that shocked because Mm -hmm. we've seen it before again and again and again. So I wonder how much of that kind of media he won't get this time, you know, with the people being shocked Mm -hmm. kind of media. And so that's why it's even more important than ever to couch his lies with truth. Last night, I was watching, you know, NBC News' streaming channel, and— I was on it. Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, when Trump pivoted from talking about Bragg and talking about this specific case to talking about his perfect Ukraine phone call and, you know, bringing back the greatest hits, just, you know, that they turned it off because they were like, okay, it's not newsworthy anymore. It's campaign speech. But watching him last night for the first time in quite some time, I did—you just kind of realize, like, how much—in the abstract, it doesn't actually really make sense why Trump wants to be president again. He didn't seem to enjoy it. Like, it doesn't make sense why he does all of this, but it's like, ah, he does it for the love of the game and the grievance. The Yeah. The Alvin Bragg timetable is five months for the plaintiff's lawyer and the defense's lawyer— to look at the evidence. Mm -hmm. This brings us to December, which is a long time away. Now, we think there are other cases. We think Jack Smith and the DOJ has a case. It's the documents case. We don't know. Again, there's some conjecture that the documents case has Trump, you know, doing some Trumpy malfeasance. I'd be shocked, but it certainly seems like there may be. We think there's Georgia. We know Fannie Willis is on it. What I think is important, and I think you should listen to, is these Republicans and even more centrists defending Trump because this case is not a good case. There are more cases to come, guys. I can't tell if that makes me (laughs) optimistic or horrified. I mean, I still think Trump gets the nomination. And again, like I was talking to a reporter today who's a friend of mine, and we're talking about, like he said, well, at some point these Republicans are going to have a reckoning where they're <laughs> like, here's this guy who's lost all these elections and now he's indicted. Perhaps that will make persuadable voters like him more. I mean, these people are in a collision course, but I don't know that they can change it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I'm always just so fascinated about the way Trump works on our emotions, because I feel like a lot of people, especially people who see themselves as calling balls and strikes, when they make predictions, what I really hear is just— what they hope desperately (laughs) will happen. Right. And that is certainly true. And that's what you you see that a lot in the never Trump world, too. You know, they hope, you know, this is a a hope over experience. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Molly. The one person I really wanted to talk to about this indictment. So, well, I was delighted to get to talk to you and I am very thrilled to get to be here. This episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and Jennifer Nolson. For more news from Inside the Hive, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at vanityfair.com forward slash newsletter forward slash hive. And let us know what you thought of this episode or if you have any comments, questions, or death threats. No, not death threats. Tweet us. Even if you don't have a blue check, I'm at Molly Jong Fast. And I'm at Vanderhoofy. Join us again next week for another episode of Inside the Hive, where Wall Street, Washington, and Silicon Valley meet. 
Glad I got to talk about my love for the Jonas Brothers. I that really, was incredible. I really do. I I mean, listen, I love that you love them. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that there is a sort of magic to celebrity, mm-hmm. you know, which Donald Trump has, which is why we're all going to die. <laughs> Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.